Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I almost said this is Phil Stevens, but I didn't. Uh, <laughs> Associate professor at the Kerrig Institute and creator of the Flex Diet Cert, and still uh, back home here in Minnesota. Well, that's that's good, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's not bad. Uh, got out kiteboarding for a few hours yesterday or the other day, and it was fun. Rode thirty miles in about two hours and forty minutes, so good times. Nice. All right. Yeah. Uh, we have a research roundup for everybody today. Uh, Phil is, I think he's at Jim Wendler's place uh, up here in Ohio, uh, so I'm sure he'll have some news when he gets back from that. So this is, you know, Mike and Lonnie like, woohoo, science nerd. Oh, nerd's time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and for new listeners, we really swing the pendulum between egghead and meathead. And last time it was a little egghead too, and now we're going to give you a research roundup, so more egghead. Uh, so if you're an academic or you like breaking science news, this is good. If you're a meathead, you're going to be like, oh, God, get Phil back on the show. <laughs> and nerds so, never shut up. Right. So <laughs> we will. We'll, um, we'll do something very power-oriented next time. In fact, of our research roundup, let me run this down the whirlwind preview. You could decide if you want to join, join the whole time. I have two papers on powerlifting and spotters. So you might find that interesting. One of them is looking at the presence of male versus female spotters. That's interesting. Mm. Uh, and the other is 15-year analysis of powerlifters and how fast they should be gaining strength, essentially, or how fast they do gain strength. You could compare yourself to them. Um, on the nutrition front, I've got a couple of things about a new plant-based meat coming down the pike. There are so many. Um, these ones are a little weird, but that's why I'm bringing them up. We've got um, a systematic review of high-fat ketogenic diets and physical performance. Interesting hmm. stuff. Um, <laughs> in fact, they found the same conclusion that I just did. I just uh, The NSCA's new sports nutrition book is coming out. I, I don't think it actually comes out until December. Um, I don't want to spoil it. what I said too much, but it's the same thing these guys <laughs> came up with. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, We've got a, an abstract on a research project that Mike and I did, and it was just, just the abstract was published in Current Developments in Nutrition over the summer, and it's basically about heart rate variability. So Mike can maybe give a rundown because he's much uh, better read on that topic than I am, uh, and then we can talk about what we found. So let's take a look at this first one here, and then obviously I'll get Dr. Nelson's analysis. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Long-term strength adaptation, a 15-year analysis of powerlifting athletes. This is from Christopher Latella uh, and colleagues, JSCR, Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. Let's see. Uh, this investigation examined the long-term strength development of powerlifting athletes. The rate of strength gain per day, I think that's interesting, was assessed mm. in almost 1,900 powerlifters. Um, 1,271 men and 626 women. Interesting. And again, over a 15-year period. So this isn't one of those 12 to 16-week acute studies like we so often rely on, right? Um, 
So they looked at strength gain per day at baseline. Um, they looked at the number of competitions, the mean days between competitions. They tried to look at a lot of these factors. And I think the the value of this is going to be, should I compete more often? Or, you know, what's the expectation for strength gain? It says... Males had greater absolute and relative strength at baseline. Well, that's not surprising. You'd expect most yeah. male powerlifters to be stronger at baseline. Um, overall strength gain per day, however, was similar between the sexes. So that's, hmm. that's pretty cool. Um, it says, however, the strongest males, I think presumably at baseline, showed a lower rate of strength improvement. Well... Sure. I mean, you know, that's like diminishing yeah, returns. Improvement. Yeah. 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 Sort of exercise his principle there. Uh, the numbers, if you're interested, as far as, um, let's see, absolute strength at baseline. And I think what they're doing is, well, they're, they're looking at the powerlifting performance. 513 plus or minus about 100 kilograms for the guys. 289 plus or minus 55 or so for the females. Um, and again, that's absolute in kilograms per kg, 5.89 kilograms per their body mass for the men and 4.27 kilograms per body mass, right? Relative to body weight for the females at baseline. So if that helps you powerlifters at all out there. And then they did the strength gain per day and Sure enough, I mean, as far as per day, it looked like the women gained over this 15-year period uh, 0.12 kilograms per day, and the men gained 0.15 kilograms per day, again, in absolute strength. So interesting. And those weren't really different from each other, correct? Correct, correct, yeah. yeah. And that's why they concluded that the strength gains over time, the improvement is actually pretty similar, you know, Um so interesting stuff, and again, uh, based on initial strength, the real strong guys, maybe not so much uh, improvement. Th this says significant but weak negative relationships between strength gain per day and the mean days between competitions were present for men and women, both statistically significant. So in other words, the R square here is going to suggest the, the percent uh, um, impact, if you will, on the strength the contribution to changes in strength based on days between competitions. So it says about a 12% impact on rate of strength gain in the females and about a 19% um, effect on strength gain in the men. Again, these are negative, right? So the longer between competitions, the poorer, uh, presumably the, the strength enhancement, you know, your career gains, if you will. Any thoughts hmm. on that, Mike? Yeah, I was just <clears throat> wondering if that's from people just taking a fair amount of time between meets and just not training as hard. Like maybe it's a, a mental thing of not having a goal and getting kind of lost for a period of time because it's a 15-year aggregation of data. Yeah. I don't know. That would be my first thought. Yeah, I, I think maybe if there's going to be, I think, some effect of the intensity of training. If you're constantly ramping oh, up sure. for your next yeah. one. Yeah. That's going to go the other way if you're too close to everything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the caveat. So, yeah, the R squared of 0 0.12 for females and 0 0.19 for men. And, again, I'm running fast and loose in my explanation of that. But, yeah, it's it's the percent of one variable explained by the other. Um, so, yeah. Um, but interesting stuff. So this would suggest, you know, you should be getting stronger at a pace, you know, of – for women, 0.12 kilograms per day, and men, 0.15 kilograms per day. When you look at your performance in a meet, you know, as you look at it. I've just never seen it per day like that before, so I'm, you know, not super clear on the units and how other people might be looking at that. But um, Yeah, and I assume they're, are they doing just kind of a linear extraction? Because I'd be interested if you pick some people out as, you know, we know that the closer you get to whatever your genetic ceiling is or your your max, whatever that ends up being, it's going to be not a linear response, but more exponential, curvilinear, right? right. You're going to see more, everybody knows this, right? You see more progress, especially when you're new, you can do anything. And then even when you're moderately trained, you know, you still need to do some stuff and then your adaptations just get slower and slower right. and slower. Plateau. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
but it, it's some interesting information, I think, about that. So um, I, I think the, the best take home is they're just trying to add numbers and quantify the rate of literally like career gains, you know, as opposed to a 12 or a 15 week study with gen pop people. Right. These are competitive powerlifters, men and women, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, I suppose it's the take home for me. I mean, I was never a powerlifter, but I competed very infrequently. Because, you know, in bodybuilding, people who aren't gassed out of their minds, it takes a long time to add some mass to look differently between contests, you know. But um, I think I probably spread them out too much. If I would have competed a little bit more frequently, it might have been better. Because, again, this is negative correlations, you know, if you're between the frequency of training and then your gains. So, Yeah, and that's always hard because, you know, everybody has a life and other events happen. And, you know, even these are obviously high level power lifters, I'm sure they have other things going on too. So it's, I, and now everything is just so screwy with competitions and playoffs. And I think uh, I got a email from a potential uh, competitor that even what they're allowing for competitions for physique are different now. And yeah, it's just oh. crazy. Yeah. You know, like I can't even keep <laughs> timelines. Yeah, with, with the differences in bodybuilding and physique, they're constantly tweaking this stuff, you know, and from what you're expected to do on stage to what they're looking for and the quality of the physique, I, I can't really keep up, you know. Um, yeah. Now they have a wellness category, and it's, yeah, it's yeah interesting. It, but it's, I don't know. I always think it's the same thing that has gone on, at least in physique sports, for quite a while. And powerlifting is very similar. It's like you're always just kind of pushing the envelope of, you know, what it was and women's physique now to me looks like what women's bodybuilding was. So it's always right. Kind of and same with the guys. I mean, you look at the, the divisions they had to kind of have more of a classic quote looking physique or whatever that means. And now it just, it all looks to me more like bodybuilding people wearing shorts who don't train legs, <laughs> right? Who don't train their quads. Yeah. yeah <laughs> legs. But I'm like, okay, whatever. If, that's what you're into, but right. I don't know. There's always going to be a, a progression to the max of whatever you set as that that line. So mm -hmm. escalation, yeah, yeah. Uh, this next one, I want to get some feedback from Phil next week. This is they did two different things, and I sort of wish that they would have separated these out into two different studies. Maybe they felt like it wasn't enough info. This is Nickerson, Brett Nickerson, and colleagues here from, oh, let's see, Texas A and M. Um, quite a few different places here, Georgia Southern, a um, whole bunch of different places. Mm. Evaluation of load velocity relationships and reps to failure equations in the presence, and this is what caught my eye, in the presence of male and female spotters. Okay, so if you're a guy and you're spotted by a man or a woman, does that matter? Or flip that around, if you're a woman athlete, does it matter if a guy or a girl is spotting you? That's what I wanted to glean from this, right? And that's why I want to ask Phil, like, do you see a difference in your gym? I mean, insofar as, let's face it, a beginner woman is not going to be spotting, like, Big Brian or some of the guys in Phil's yeah. gym, you know. But so they say purpose of the study is twofold. Uh, a was to determine whether differences in basically velocity, bar velocity, uh, Reps to failure, measured 1RM, and predicted 1RM varies between lifter and spotter sex. And the other one was to basically look at these different prediction equations. If you want to just use bar speed, as I understand it, bar velocity, um, or do reps to failure and different things to predict someone's one rep max, right, which is often done. You don't always do a real one rep max with people. Um, does that come into play somehow here? And I'd love to just reach out to these researchers because it, this just looks a little bit messy, but let me just read through what I, what I'm gleaning from this 20 resistance trained individuals, 50% men uh, participated. The initial two visits involved measuring their one rep max in the bench press with either a male or a female spotter. So they did, it looks like a real one repetition max. Um, visits three and four required them to lift loads at 30% of their one rep max for five reps 50% of their one rep max for five reps. And again, this is what we used to do with the coffee, right? We put 
a lighter load, a 30 to 50% load, had them do just a handful of reps, and we looked at bar velocity. I mean, this is the same stuff we did with coffee, which, by the way, coffee did enhance that, whether you were habituated or not. Um, and then uh, uh, reps to failure with 70% of their one rep max. And Dr. Nelson and I are familiar. That's a very common test. Yeah. Uh, like muscle endurance, sort of. Um, in the presence of a male or a female spotter. So let's see here. What jumped to me is this sentence. Female lifters produced significantly higher estimated 1RMs during the male spotter condition, at least with some of these prediction equations. Again, they're gonna, if they use these prediction equations, they're kind of comparing the quality of them. But according to at least two of these estimation equations, the females seem to be performing higher with a male spotter. And that's what I want to ask Phil about, mm. too. Like, what's, the, what's it like in the field? Like, if I'm interpreting this right, is this what you see in the field? I, my gut tells me that a guy might, his performance might go up with a female spotter. Um, but the, if, if the female was the athlete and there was a male spotter, my gut tells me they wouldn't care. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but it, it, so down to the conclusion, it says spotter sex only seems to impact female lifters uh, and when we use certain prediction equations. So I hmm. hope that makes sense to everybody. But, yeah, it looks like overall, at least by some of these estimation methods, women are performing better with a male spotter. Um, I don't know. I, I'd just like to see what Phil hmm. has to say about that. What do you think? Yeah, Any thoughts there? I no idea. <laughs> I could argue. <laughs> Either yeah. way, I suppose I, yeah, I think it's just an interesting question. I haven't really thought a lot about, to be honest. Yeah, it, they go, they get down in the weeds a little bit about comparing various different velocity based one rep max ex estimations, you know. And I would have hmm. preferred to see just like the straight. What's the R? What's the one RM in yeah. man ver, with a male versus female spotter for each sex? You know, what's the reps to failure with a male versus female spotter for each sex? And I don't have the full paper in front of me. Yeah, so I mean, the reason I I would my gut tells me that uh, a a woman athlete wouldn't be as influenced by the sex of the spotter is because if you look at some data, and I can't point to any of it specifically right now, but stuff like um, um, if you lose a spouse, it seems to be more devastating if the man is left, you know, to the man. Um, whereas if if a if a partner is lost and the woman is the one left standing, if you will. She's just less impacted in a way. Hmm. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it speaks to women being more independent in general or more capable of self-care or whatever it is. Yeah. And I don't know. So I'm kind of extrapolating to think that a, a woman wouldn't be as affected by the gender of the spotter. But we'll check in with Phil and we'll see what, you know, the in the trenches is because I think that's what Iron Radio brings to the table, right? We can yeah. look at some of this new stuff and then and then go see. I don't know, Mike, because you're distance, you don't really get much opportunity for those sorts of observations, do you? Or do you? No, <clears throat> not anymore. I yeah. mean, I've done just a handful of, of powerlifting events and helped out with a few, but that was like mm, many years ago. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I haven't, haven't been to too many in, in a while, actually. The more, more grip competitions, things like that, but not, not so much straight up powerlifting. Gotcha. Um, okay, well, that's the two uh, I have on powerlifting. The rest of what I have is going to be like food news and nutrition stuff and and that sort of thing. Um, let me do a, a one that's just sort of light, uh, and then we'll go to break, and Mike and I can talk about uh, a few other things here. Plant-based tuna brand expands fundraising round. So this is actually back from early summer of this year. Monica Watrous. W-A-T-R-O-U-S is the um, journalist here. This is from New York. Gathered Foods, maker of plant-based seafood alternative brand Good Catch, has netted, mm. has netted haha, a number of celebrity investors, including Woody Harrelson, Paris Hilton, a couple, looks like boy band <laughs> people. Uh, um, the new backing adds to the company's recent $36.8 million of financing they're already getting. Uh, wow. It looks like it's, let's see, different financing rounds led by industry investors Greenleaf Foods and the venture arm of General Mills 
Okay, so now we're talking. Those are the big boys. Um, it says, these products are in more than 4,500 retail outlets across the U.S. and the U.K. So for our United Kingdom listeners, the brand offers fish-free tuna, and here it comes, formulated with a blend of peas, beans, lentils, and algal oil. Hmm. Mm, tasty. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That, that, a little dry, a little sarcasm from Dr. Nelson. And I, t- I tend to think that, too. Now, I guess on the good side, it says the algal oil is a plant source of omega-3s. And, I mean, if you crack open a can of tuna, you're not going to get a ton of omega-3s compared to salmon or some other things. Yeah. So maybe it's got that going for it. Um, let's see if they have a justification for this. <laughs> I just think it's the trends, you know. Um, yeah. But people are wanting to invest, you know, Hollywood people and whatnot, you know, digging on this stuff. So uh, the pictures they have are fish burgers, crab cakes, and fish cakes. Okay, well, that's – I suppose mm. if you mix it with some other stuff and, you know, fry it, it might taste better. Um, <laughs> <laughs> more oil, more salt, yeah. fry so, it. Yeah, do something with it. Uh, now – I followed up with this, and here's um, something. From the end of this summer, Nestle is in on it, too. Nestle develops plant-based tuna. So from Keith Nunes, um, August 20th. So this is really recent. From Vevey, Switzerland. I'm probably destroying how you pronounce that. V-E-V-E-Y. Nestle has entered the plant-based tuna market with a new product, made from six ingredients and they don't detail all of them, but I've got to assume they're similar to the other one we saw. The launch will include a refrigerated product line to be used in salads, uh, uh, sandwiches. Nestle is promoting the product's sustainability attributes, including the reduction of overfishing in the oceans. And then a quote here, our plant-based tuna Alternative is delicious, nutritious, and high in protein while also being mercury-free, said Stefan Paulzer, chief technology officer. Uh, We're excited to launch this and other plant-based fish and shellfish alternatives that are already under development. So mostly we've been talking about, I think, terrestrial meats, really, you know, and or uh, like in vitro, like lab-grown meats and stuff like that. And we've been talking about that. Mike, you and I saw that stuff, uh, what, 2017 at the IFT meeting. and Yeah. Uh, and then we would speculate about, no, they're doing poultry too, and they're doing fish. And so here it is. It looks like it's lagging a little, but now here comes the tuna. Uh, bodybuilders often live on tuna. You know, it's a cheap protein source. Um, I always looked at tuna like a utility food, though. We're not talking about fillets and delicious and, you know, yeah, I'm talking about that grayish big, <laughs> can It's a tuna. big difference because yeah. I hated tuna for many years because the only thing I had was the canned tuna growing up, which to me smelled like cat food. And I'm like, there's no way I'm eating that. And then I had a tuna fillet once and I'm like, oh, this isn't even remote. This is the same animal. Right. Really? This is the same fish? What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely different in every way. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. Yeah, I mean, here's a practical, like, uh, gym hack for everybody or kitchen hack. Um, I would just crack open a can, and I found that if I chugged it down with some orange juice, because citrus is often paired with fish, and in this case, just to mask it, right? Because we're talking about some low-quality 60-cent-per-can, you know, um, grocery store tuna. And I would just wash it down with OJ to get a cheap source of protein. So if you're a college student and you don't want to spend 50 bucks on a can of fancy you know, um, whey peptides or something like that. It's not a bad approach. And at least these plant ones, it looks like they're going to throw in some extra omega-3s. I was glad the Nestle one just said it was high in protein because that's one of the things you got to keep an eye on with these plant-based yeah. ones. You're like, oh, cool, alternative. And it's either low in protein or, it's, I mean, plants are inherently low-quality protein, less digestible protein, you know. So we have to be real careful calling these things the equivalent if you're – if you're slamming tuna right now for muscle gain, like I have for so many years, um, I don't know if it's going to be quite the equivalent. It might be tastier, but I'm guessing the nutritional rundown is not going to be quite as good. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll taste test one of those coming up, you know? Um, oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I know. 
I know. After what I just said, in fact, like you, Mike, I mean, I I did not like tuna. It was a discipline thing for me. It was something I did because I could sit down on on a bench even before I left the gym and slam some OJ and a can of tuna and say, there's your protein muscles, you know. Uh, uh, now, now please grow because it wasn't fun. It wasn't tasty. Um, it was just brutally effective, you know, in a very plain kind of way. But it was not a, a culinary experience for sure. No, uh, for a while I was on uh, when I was traveling a lot years ago, sort of a tuna kick. They had, a, <clears throat> I think they still have them in like the uh, foil packaging. It was actually a, a somewhat a tuna fillet, or at least it was shaped like a tuna fillet, and mm-hmm. they'd have little seasoning already in there. Oh yeah, and yeah. The, and the crazy part was <clears throat> they didn't need to be refrigerated. They were in the store section next to all the canned items, and so I tried a couple of those. And I'm like, oh, this is. Not the best thing I've ever had, but it's it's not that bad. It's hmm. not nearly as bad as canned tuna. Mm-hmm. It wasn't super expensive. So I bought some of those for a while, and then one day I'm like, hey, how do they keep this in like a tinfoil kind of pouch-looking thing without it being refrigerated? Yes. I know. I Packaging, they, man. They Packaging. radiate them. For sure. Just like uh, packaged MREs and... I think Hormel had a bacon that they did that to for a while. And it actually makes it quite shelf-stable. Um, but when I did the Ram Race, the Race Across America, I was a volunteer for that probably like 10 years ago now. We had to kind of bring our own food because we didn't know where we were going to stop or what was going on. Yeah. So I packaged a bunch of these things. wasn't thinking. My bag got put underneath the compartment on the outside. Oh. So I don't know what level of temperature it was <laughs> exposed to. Yeah. And we stopped at a convenience store, so I kind of ran in and threw one of these in the microwave and heated it up for like 30 seconds and then ran out. <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder, I guess I should maybe still eat this. And like everyone in the store, which of course now smells like tuna, right. yep. are like looking around going, what the hell's going on? Oh, it smells like fish in here. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> Who's the jerk? They put tuna in the microwave. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and you know, yeah, it's worth saying there, but yeah, irradiation in these fancy, like hermetically sealed packages and stuff. That doesn't mean yeah. you can open the stuff and then just leave it on the counter and, you know, and no, uh, no, stuff it, was, like it that. was still sealed. I checked the contents were still sealed, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, uh, so it's interesting what technology will come up with. And I don't know. I mean, yeah. part of my brain goes to, it's like, well, Maybe we should look at actually having more sustainable fishing practice. And the fact that canned tuna is still very inexpensive to me is kind of shocking. It just seems like we're, I wonder how much of it is if you did like a life cycle analysis of, you know, the off-gassing and the energy it takes to produce it and all that kind of stuff, which I'm sure the companies would probably rightfully argue that it's a new product and once you scale it, it'll be better and I don't know. I just often wonder if there's really that much of a environmental difference between it at the end of the day, or is it just the assumption that, well, it's not from real fish, so it must be better for the environment. I know Rob Wolf and Diana Rogers have a good book out about that looking at in terms of, you know, red meat and some of the assumptions that, that go into it also are it's probably maybe not as bad as we thought, but yeah, it gets very complicated very fast and i'm not a environmental expert on that stuff right you're right we have to be very careful i you know with all the documentaries i know they're very controversial about alternate energy and stuff you can't automatically assume this is way better than the way we used to do it you have to actually go look yeah you have to go look um yeah i was only able to eat stuff like a proper tuna fish sandwich you know a little bit of onions and mayo and stuff in the last couple of years like literally i couldn't (laughs) even look at tuna like no no I still can't do it. Right. The smell just, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Like I said, nutritionally, I, I would think if people want to buy this, especially if they can put it in a packet like Mike is talking about, like on the end cap in the grocery store or something, I'm not sure it's going to provide that same. Like if you have to choke it down, um, you know, and if it's it's got less protein, I mean, the Nestle one has at least some, or it's lower quality, why are you doing that? You know, you might want to think about something, something else. Um yeah, and I think one of them say that's in the refrigerated section. Is that correct? I'd have to go back and revisit that. Yeah, I think it did because a lot of the the soy milks initially were not refrigerated, 
And supposedly the rumor was once they put them next to the refrigerated section next to milk, their sales went up astronomically. Because it makes sense if your brain goes, I'm looking for milk. Oh, what's this? You're not going to think milk and go look in the middle of the grocery aisle in a non-refrigerated section, even though they could be in that area for some of them. Mm -hmm. Product placement and all that. Right. Um, In fact, this is partly related. Another, you know, powerlifter, bodybuilder food, but eggs. Um, You might have heard, listeners, that uh, uh, in Europe, a lot of people, they don't refrigerate eggs. You know, oh, and like Mexico, they don't either. Uh, and Most countries, they don't. <laughs> um, I dug into why that is. Like, I'm like, well, you know, these proteins are, man, eggs will spoil. You know, and but here in the states, the FDA and other authorities insist that we wash the eggs, so they in yep. mass wash the eggs, and then you lose apparently some of that protective barrier. I don't know, the shell becomes more porous or whatever. Whereas if you just kind of leave the chicken stuff residue <laughs> on the eggs uh they don't need to be refrigerated now i'm not going to tell people not to do that go look it up yourself before you start buying eggs here in the states and leaving it on your kitchen counter because that's probably not going to work because we wash them and they don't but it's one of those things sort of like is nature doing it right and should we not have meddled you know because obviously there's to your point about like carbon footprint and cost and why are we washing all these eggs you know, uh, here we're kind of thinking, well, let's try to get whatever bacteria, salmonella or whatever off the egg. Uh, but apparently that there's not much of a problem with that uh, in other countries. So might be something you might want to look up yourselves as we're talking about some of these protein foods. Because, of course, the protein ones are the ones who just usually, you know, three or four hours on the counter and you're starting to doubt whether or not you should eat that, you know. so Yeah, I remember going to Mexico years ago. We went down to... Uh, La Ventana on Baja and I'm like whoa the eggs are like not been refrigerated and I asked one of the guys there I said have you been eating the eggs he's like yeah it's great I'm like oh okay and so bought a bunch of eggs from you know the local farmer there basically and cracked them in the pan I'm like oh my gosh like the yolks are like bright yellow they're almost like glowing in the dark like in a good like, way super in a good way yeah, yeah. super bright and then we went to one of the, the bigger stores there. There was just like crates of eggs just sitting out in the middle of the store, like not refrigerated. I'm like, wow, that's so crazy. And you go to other countries it and it's pretty much, I think, only really the U.S. I think that I've seen that eggs are generally refrigerated. Uh, yeah, so. I think that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Because maybe in the U.S. someone will lick the shell of the egg and get sick and I sue know. the FDA or who well, knows what will happen. You know, and – personal anecdote before we go to break um my wife and i have both gotten hives and and broken out and gotten kind of sick on what should have been a hermetically sealed or or, you know properly packaged food item that was just set at room temperature Uh, Uh, i i got sick on it was a protein like uh, a ready to drink protein thing um and obviously, I had been exposed to some of those same bacteria before, you know what I mean? And I just lit up yeah. with a reaction. Uh, and she, for her, it was a soy product um, being lactose intolerant and all. Same, similar problem, actually. So, I mean, you really are banking on the fact, not so much with eggs, because they're sort of intact, but the eggs would have to be intact. But the packaging, whether it's natural or man made, it better be intact if it's not refrigerated. Um, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a buddy of mine years ago, one of his jobs going through college was he somehow got the job of being the inspector at one of those vending uh, companies that makes sandwiches that have to be semi-refrigerated. <laughs> okay, he was yeah. one of the inspectors there. This is years ago. Um, and I asked him, I said, would you eat one of those sandwiches? He's like, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not giving me a lot of confidence right. here. Totally. <laughs> Okay, everybody, we're going to go to break. Mike and I are going to come back. We've got two more papers here to just discuss. One is a, a big review of ketogenic diets, and the other is about coffee and heart rate variability and whether or not it screws you over uh, to be stimulated all the time. So we'll be back. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. 
I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text the Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast Airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio Taste Test, In about 15 minutes, we cover taste and texture similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. You're with Dr. Lonnie Lowry. Phil's away, uh, hanging out with Jim Wendler, I think. So the nerds are at play today, and we're talking about this segment, the effects of caffeine on heart rate variability. And then Lonnie's talking about a big review on ketogenic diets, and I think it was performance, correct? Yeah. Yep. Um. Yeah, let's run through that one. Oh, and hey, everybody, before I forget... We have an upcoming, uh, our next YouTube taste test. It's actual video. We back up the podcast, the audio on YouTube, of course. But if you want to see us, see actual our faces. And it's funny because listeners have thought that Mike and I were each other's voice. <laughs> it's just <laughs> funny. It's, you know what it is? It's powerlifters. I don't know. Those guys look nerdy. It's, those, those are the nerds. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the next one coming up is... It's a low-carb snack, right? So we, we did mushroom jerky last time, and we're going to do Jack Link's bacon jerky. So I'm just inviting everybody, go buy it. It's fairly widely found. I think you can get it, like, in the cashier yeah. aisle at Walmart and stuff like that. Um, and then you can kind of follow along when we release that, and you can see if, you know. Mike will do the usual rundown, like nutritional rundown. We'll talk about, you know, where we might use this. Is it applicable? Is it valuable to us? Uh, whatever it might be, but you know, as I'm about to talk about a ketogenic diet review, obviously bacon jerky is going to fit that mold, you know, um, because the mushroom jerky really didn't, I think it had over 20 grams of carbs, you know? So, (laughs) um, yeah, watch for that coming up on YouTube here. We'll probably record that within the next, uh, one to two weeks. Yeah. And Phil loved the mushroom jerky. He's like (laughs) stockpiling it right here. (laughs) I know he's like, why don't you just fry up some mushrooms? You know, <laughs> it's you know, it's convenience, right? But yeah, I mean, if if the point of jerky to me, it's sort of like what you're saying with the, the tuna utility. If yeah. the point is protein, the mushroom didn't really provide that. You might get some of the neat mushroom nutrition, and and by the way, 
Um, Mike gave a ton of studies and links that we put in the show notes on YouTube. If you're interested in mushroom nutrition, we keep threatening to do an episode on that. And, that, and so the YouTube, the last YouTube taste test was the closest we got. Uh, but there's a ton of info in there. And the stuff you sent, Mike, was very specific. It was awesome. Yeah, there's actually a lot of pretty supportive data on it. Again, it falls down the rabbit hole. Of if you're using it as a supplement, there's lots of watch out for things in the shady supplement industry of it. But yeah, right there's some good data on it. Yeah. Yep. Okay, uh, here it is. This is from Advances in Nutrition from Nancy Murphy and colleagues. High-fat ketogenic diet and physical performance, a systematic review. So everything about this is interesting to me because I just wrote a book chapter on this stuff myself, but also because, you know, a lot of what we just talked about last week, right? Lifters have all this muscle mass, which is a good gas tank for carbohydrates, you know, if you're going to eat carbs. And yet we more and more think over the last 20 years, we just were eschewing the carbs and we're eating fats instead. Anyway, this says use of high fat ketogenic diets to support physical performance has grown in popularity in recent years. While these diets enhance fat metabolism and reduce carb oxidation during exercise, the impact of a ketogenic diet on performance, physical performance, remains controversial. And yes, it does. There's a lot of things. You can't just say, oh, uh, keto makes me a better lifter. Mm, I'm very skeptical mm -hmm. at that myself. But so what does the research say? They did a systematic review of the literature um, using PubMed, right, and the Cochrane Library. So very standard evidence libraries for uh, scientific papers. The participants, they had to select what papers they're going to look at, right, in this review. They had to be healthy, so not diseased, non-obese, so their body mass index had to be less than 30. Actually, that might weed out some power lifters, wouldn't it? And some heavy Eventually, yeah, 30 is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Depends I'm 29. They're looking at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, I get it. They have to have some simple measure. They yeah. can't you know, always count on body comp. Um, trained and untrained men and women. Um, so they compared ones that had the, the the ketogenic diet. People had to have less than 50 grams of carbohydrate per day, or a serum or whole blood beta hydroxybutyrate of greater than uh, 0.5 millimole per liter. So pretty standard uh, assumptions, I think, as far as uh, being in ketosis. If you're not used to real low-carb diets, we're talking about hardcore. Less than 50 grams a day, I eat that in a snack, you know. Yeah, that's breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they compared that with controls, and it said the controls had between 12 and 38% of their total calorie intake from fat. So pretty standard between low-fat and, you know, moderate fat. Um, they had to be on these diets for more than two weeks. And then the studies also had to have a performance test. So this is what they found. 17 studies with 29 performance tests. And this is what I kept focusing on when I was reading this literature. God, it depends on the test, you know. Is, oh, yeah. I mean, different energy systems in the body, right? Um. Anyway, so it says... 29 performance outcomes were identified of the 13 endurance type tests. Three reported lower performance and 10 reported no difference between ketogenic diets and controls. Um, so three said it harmed performance and 10 said no effect. Now, I'm more interested myself in the power stuff, and I know a lot of our listeners are. Uh, of the 16 power or strength performance outcomes, three reported lower performance, 11 reported no difference, and two reported enhanced performance. But then they point out that the ones reporting enhanced performance weren't specifically strength tests. They were power tests. So again, mm -hmm. it, you know... Even in the anaerobic category, they're trying to tease apart strength versus power. So um, a real mixed bag. Uh, it says they also identified risk of bias uh, because, of course, the participants, they couldn't blind them, right? They knew they were on a high-fat diet or not. 
uh, a ketogenic diet, super low carb diet, and they suspect some bias in that way. And you could almost see that. You know, some people are so zealous about their ketogenic diets. Maybe it's somebody who's really into CrossFit and then they kind of bring in the ketogenic thing or a paleo thing. And they just, they love what it's doing to their body composition. So they conflate that with performance, you know. And it would be a shame to have them try to, you know, psychologically, maybe they're complying a little better or uh, performing just that little extra 1%, you know, to try to prove a point. I don't know. But so there could be some bias for several reasons, I'm speculating. Um, but they say overall, the majority of the results suggest that ketogenic diets do not have an impact on physical performance uh, across the board. Discordant results could be due to multiple factors. And again, this is why it's so hard, uh, including the type of performance test. There it is. Um, obviously, also some things I think are obvious, like the duration of consuming the, the fat diet, right? The uh, maybe a sex difference or training status. You know, I mean, somebody who's highly fit may have more mitochondria. Maybe they can utilize the fat that they're mobilizing better. Um, so they're saying really doesn't have much of an impact. Some studies say worse. Most say no effect. And just a, a small handful suggest maybe better if you're choosing the right performance test. So um, I'm going to take away from this essentially the same thing I did when I looked at this stuff earlier this year, which is probably good for body composition because you know you're cutting calories uh usually even if you're trying to eat the same number of calories there are some body comp benefits to keto uh performance you know uh, i think people need to be careful and not again conflate the body comp benefits with performance it's not really going to be um, a huge boost to most power and, and strength performance but mike i know you look at this stuff a lot too what do you think about this stuff yeah, I mean, I generally would agree. I mean, I published just a short article on this, oh man, probably four or five years ago now uh, with Andy Gelpin and some of his grad students. And my first pet peeve is we don't need any more <clears throat> reviews of of this topic. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it's like you're just trying to, I don't know, squeeze more juice out of an orange that's already been dead and run over like four times yeah yeah um i mean i just pulled up i mean there's a couple other reviews already that have been done on this area i mean i think this one they tried to do it i would say more correct in air quotes and look at individual tests and they stratified by a vo2 max and they did looking at time trials and not just how long can you run on a treadmill at 62 percent of your vo2 max but even some of the individuals studies i won't name their names but i don't know how much i trust some of the data and then you also have to look at the individual study because some of the ketogenic studies had a carbohydrate period where they reloaded them on carbohydrates and then did testing again uh, one particular study that's buried all the way in like two lines in the methods section so if you didn't read the whole study and weren't pretty particular about looking at what part of the data you pulled, um, again, you could miss that. And I'm not saying the authors of the study missed it. I'm just saying for people who like to read abstracts and come to their own conclusions, Interesting, you yeah. got to watch out for that. And then also, like you said, highly depends on what tests they're doing. Some of the speed and power tests are, I would say, not always the best for being reproducible. Right. And it's probably because that's a testing variable and there's probably more physiologic variability to that than I think we truly understand. Um, I mean, if listeners have ever done any like high power output stuff on the rower or even just looking at lifts on particular days. I mean, some days like bar velocity is faster than other days, you know, due to you know sleep, recovery, a whole bunch of other stuff. So trying to control for that all the time, I think, is. You're going to need more <clears throat> subjects than I think what they have in a lot of the studies, especially if you start going and looking at just, you know, absolute peak power and things of that. There's a pretty high variance on it. So uh, I like if I'm going to look at power, I like looking at, at least a 30 second wind gate or something like that. You know, it's a little bit more reproducible than I've done a 100 meter uh, test with a lot of clients and 
it's just so technique specific. You space out for half a second and, you know, don't do a one good pull and your time is your max watts is severely lower, yeah. right? Because you're dealing with just such a short period of time to try to grab that. Um, and there's obviously ways around that to try to mitigate it. You can do three trials, take the best of that, et cetera. So all that I would say depends on the methods and everything else. And the last part too is that it just, I don't know, it just feels like to me you're trying to take a, square peg and jam it in a round hole it's like for i don't think ketogenic diets are, are bad i think they can be useful for some people but we have a fair amount of data now showing that for speed and power uh, probably not the best right yeah. And this study or meta-analysis or review would support that also um yeah one study said maybe it might be a little bit better the rest were kind of a push a couple showed it was lower so and that kind of jives with what I've seen in the real world. I mean, even just people not having enough carbohydrates. Uh, nice part about doing stuff on the rover is you get, you know, wattage from everyone that's relatively accurate. So I've done it with a couple of clients now where we've just added more carbohydrates to their diet before some of their testing. And, you know, they've been able to create 20 to 40 watts more just by upping their carbohydrates for a few days before the test. Interesting. Um, yeah. And that's not putting them on a ketogenic diet. That's just from a low background of carbohydrates, too. So, yeah, I mean, the last point, too, is that some people argue that, well, you need to be on a ketogenic diet for a year, maybe a year and a half to see these benefits are going to happen Lord. then. Yeah. And I'm like, well, there's we don't have much data in that area. I mean, Volek has a faster study, which you know tried to take... People who were at, you know, pretty well-adapted ketogenic athletes who were at a very high level, but running on a treadmill, I think at 62% of your VO2 max is not going to win you races either. So even if there's a very non-linearity or something that happens with the ketogenic diet at, let's say, year one, ooh, and you're training for speed and power, I you've missed out on basically a whole year <laughs> of potentially training at a little bit of a higher output and a higher quality. Yeah. So that to me, that better be one hell of an adaptation that seems to happen right. at that point. You know, that's my thinking too. I mean, uh, you're always talking about fuel selector switches and things yeah. like that. And I mean, classic exercise physiology, decades of research. And, you know, I got sick of looking at carbohydrates all the time because that's all it ever was. You know, a lot of military oh, funding yeah, totally. in the 80s and 90s and and I was always a power athlete, and so my dissertation was, a spe was with specialty fats, and then I got into testing really high-protein diets. And pr fats and proteins are more interesting to me, but, again, it's classic ex-phys. You know, the way I kind of sum it up for a lot of freshmen is, you know, um, glycolysis can ramp up very quickly, right? Whereas beta-oxidation and then, you know, aerobic processes – not so much. So like you said, you'd have to be one hell of a, an adapted athlete with compensating with tons more mitochondria to even hope, you know, that you could equal the speed of something like, a, you know, fast glycolysis, I guess. Um, yeah. And that's the hard part if you're looking, again, at speed and power, which doesn't mean that you can't lift weights and do a ketogenic diet. You know, that's not really speed and power per se. You right. know, we're looking at more max output wattage, maybe Olympic weightlifting. That's kind of a caveat because you've got such long rest periods between attempts, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I would just like to see more original research on it. And my bias is with the advent of ketogenic supplements now, I would like to see more use of a ketone ester yes. because you can get around. And we've tried to do this. We've run this study informally with the Kerrig Institute twice when I've taught it nutrition. So we'll have people do uh, a fast a day, do a 2K. So, you know, max output VO2 max type study or test. And then the next day, we'll give them a ketone ester. And again, this isn't blinded because if you've ever tried a ketone ester, it's really hard to <laughs> blind the taste of that to placebo. Nasty, huh? Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last day, uh, just eat as many carbohydrates as you can and see what happens. And, you know, we did have a couple people hit PRs on the fasted day. Uh, we didn't really have anyone so far to date. And again, this is informal, not published. 
uh, on the ketone ester didn't hit a PR, although they oddly enough felt like their RPE was a little bit lower and some of their Stroop testing was a little bit better. And then on the carbohydrate day, uh, we had several people hit PRs on that. Again, informal testing, but it'd be nice to see that more formally done because you can get around some of the issues of having a ketogenic diet done for 8, 12, 16 weeks, the bias of knowing that you're on you know, that diet. So I think it allows people to do a shorter-term study to try to get at some of the mechanisms of what's going on yeah, yeah. Uh, with esters. I mean, we were having people hitting, you know, three millimolar. We had a couple people hit four millimolar within 20 minutes. Whew. So you can just skyrocket your ketone levels very high, very fast. Um, now, again, that may not be exactly the same as a ketogenic diet. Like you can argue that, but... It would be interesting because if all those trials, let's say, are done and they show a positive for it, okay, then maybe you have some evidence to say, okay, let's do a longer, you know, 12, 16-week intervention of a ketogenic diet and try to replicate it in that manner. Right. So. Yeah, I, I agree. That's where the research, I think, the interesting thing is going. In fact, I, I'd like to get some ketone esters from you if I can. We can talk later. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the, the, the ones I've used so far are HVMN. They're like $33 a vial, so. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Because that's the downside. I have a colleague, <laughs> you, you, I think you mentioned Stroop words or some cognitive tests. He's yeah. interested in the cognition part. Um, yes. You know, so that's very cool. And yeah, to me, because where this is heading, uh, beyond something that's a little bit more obvious or straightforward, like don't eat carbs, get into ketosis, is that you're asking your body when you to choose like here's glucose plenty of blood glucose and plenty of muscle glycogen also here's a lot of ketone which do you mm -hmm. prefer or do you like a mix and do does the combination work i mean there's a lot of good questions there you know so i'd love yeah. to see that too yeah i mean obviously one of the main studies from veach's lab showed that in combination with carbohydrates and again they were using their specific ketone ester I think this was published in Cell maybe four or five years ago now. I don't remember the exact date. But they did show, uh, I want to say, two and a half, three percent 3% increase in performance in elite cyclists. Mm -hmm. And they were giving them a ketone ester and additional carbohydrates, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of fascinating. Yeah. So, again, that study hasn't necessarily been replicated. I mean, Burke's done a couple studies using race walkers where they haven't seen a big increase. She just published another study where she... <laughs> She went and took all the criticisms from the first study and incorporated that into her latest study and basically replicated her own findings, which is interesting. So hopefully other labs will be able to do something similar now too. But yeah, I think it opens the door of easier testing. Uh, more labs can do it. You can buy the esters off the shelf, which hint, hint, if anyone's doing the study, that's what I would recommend. Yeah. If you look at some researchers, they tried not to do that and had severe GI upset in the study, which I think kind of eh, throws those results a little bit out the window because if you feel like you're going to throw up, you're probably not going to get your max test. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, but it's 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 fascinating. I mean, my bias right now, uh, Brandon Egan has published on this, as Dom D'Agostino, that under high cognitive load and doing a lot of fatiguing exercise, I think think ketones may be a benefit for something like that um so if you get into scenarios with even special forces people were you know biathlon potentially where now you've got to be accurate shooting something and do a cardiovascular event yeah um so i think if i were to guess right now that's where i would say there there may be some benefit and the last part too is potentially health benefits very interesting data on related to TBI, so traumatic brain injury. Sure. I'm doing a course for the Kerrigan Institute on ketogenic diets and TBI that maybe after the fact or maybe prophylactically, you can reduce your recovery time if you get hit in the head because yep. ketones solve the two major problems when you get whacked in the skull of having a massive energy crisis, like glucose metabolism goes offline, and then potentially your blood-brain barrier can open up. So now you've got massive amount of neuroinflammation with all these other compounds, you know, going into the brain and ketogenic diets can potentially serve as ketone bodies as an alternate fuel for the brain mm -hmm. and then uh, potentially reducing some neuroinflammation via anti-inflammatory effects, too. Yeah. You know, listeners, if you're 
this idea of alternative fuel, whether it's whether it's TBI or even just muscle tissue or whatever. Yeah. I mean, creatine, right? Yep. A, a similar thing. Like if glucose metabolism is getting screwed up or offline, like Mike says, then alternate fuels, creatine, ketone bodies. This is very interesting. It's the reason I want to see a, a paper where if the performance test is very brief, like let's say you're doing triples, right? So you're not really engaging in a typical 30-second all-out carb-focused, you know, or 60-second, like, continuous power test, but yeah. you've got multiple sets over the next hour, right? I'm trying to make this, like, as real as possible. Like, if somebody's in Phil's gym or a bodybuilder's gym uh, where I train and stuff like that, the, the test itself, a triple, you know, with a heavy weight in the bench or squat or whatever, that itself, you know, I I don't see that being... It's not the same energy system as, let's say, glycolysis and carb reliance and all that. But set doing that set after set, you know, I, there may be a role for this. I just I just want to see some data, like you said. We have to we have to add some juice to the orange instead of just keep looking, you know. So yeah, and you could make an argument that and this will probably trip people out and goes down another rabbit hole. So I saw this probably God, six or seven years ago. Long story short, a guy invented a sensor. So instead of the pulse ox that you look at on your finger, right? So looking at arterial levels of oxygen, he took the same NEARS technology and put it over a muscle. So now I can stick this device over, uh, say, quadriceps, and I can look locally at what's going on with the muscle use of oxygen. It's a MOXIE system. So I ended up buying one, had one for a while. And the crazy thing is, you stick it on my quad, and then I did a 30-second all-out on the rower. And the first few seconds, again, the sensor's got a couple seconds delay. You don't see much drop in oxygen. And at about the 15-second mark, it's significantly lower. By like 20 seconds, it's well over half of what it was initially. And that's supposedly an anaerobic event that I'm doing. But what you see is muscle oxygenation levels drop first which just trips people out. So I think the aerobic system is turned on first and is used to its highest capacity and is always kind of running in the background. And then you have all these other systems that are turning on to try to keep up with the rate of ATP replenishment. So your aerobic system to me is almost always running, but by bioenergetics, it can't replace the ATP at a fast enough rate, even using carbohydrates. So then you have all these other systems that feed and try to dump into it, not this, oh, it's purely anaerobic, so there's no oxygen being used for 30 or 60 seconds. It's kind of bunk, but right. anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, back to the original, like, the test, the type of test is really going to matter here, you know. And yeah. if you're a power lifter, I'm not sure a lot of power lifter, unless you're doing conditioning work and pushing or dragging something or whatever, yeah, I mean, the lifts themselves and power lifting, that's, it's different energy system like you know all all of these strength and power tests are not even the same you know because of the duration and the intensity they're not even the same pathways so yeah and different tests are probably going to be slightly different depending upon the athletes used and all that kind of stuff yep all right everybody i'll tell you what um mike and i we were going to talk about the caffeine thing too I think let's table that till next time because we're at 60 yeah. minutes because we Mike and I always go to like 75 minutes on these. <laughs> uh, and we can we can fire up some discussion about what we found with coffee and and heart rate variability and stuff like that. Um, now that that stuff is. At least the abstract is in print, but um, and it, we're going to build on that next year, too. And maybe I, I'll we can even speculate a little bit about not just what we found but what we're I already have the data so I already know (laughs) so what what we're going to probably report uh, next year you know and I think that's one of the benefits of a podcast like this like you can hear Mike and I geek out about mechanisms and stuff but the more you look under the hood and the more you you know understand these different metabolic systems and stuff the more you realize you can manipulate them and that's what we're about awesome right, man I'll see you next week hopefully Phil will be back with us Good. See you guys. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. 
in their thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.